Great stories, epic songs, Podplays. If you enjoy the new and original music you discover in Podplays, be sure to stream or download these songs anywhere you currently get your music. Simply search the artist name Podplays, and please remember to like, follow, and share with all your friends. Hey, I just wanted to take a quick second and tell you that if you want to be a fly on the wall in conversations you probably wouldn't be able to listen to otherwise, you really need to subscribe to the Marty Ray Project Chats podcast. Marty Ray and Chris Wallen chat with some of the most interesting people in entertainment, from Burt Kreischer and Vanilla to Faison Love, DDP, Dina Carter, Herb Dean. They chat with some really interesting people. This show is like potato chips. I guarantee you, you can't just listen to one. Subscribe, download, rate, and review the Marty Ray Project Chats wherever podcasts are heard. Welcome to the pod play entitled Last Flag on Oak Island, Part 3. Adapted from the screenplay, written by J.R. Jordan Baines. Lauren skirts out of the cottage and heads for the lighthouse, pushing her way in the main door when she gets there. All the while, its bright golden beam sweeps the ground in the black, stormy night. Once in the base room, she looks around, shakes off the rain, and begins the long climb up the winding staircase. In the beacon room, the prism is blinding white. Lauren reaches the landing, looks around, then switches on a small weather radio. Marine storm warning in effect. Wind gusts of 40 knots expected. Small craft curfew. Large craft advisory. Lauren turns down the volume of the radio and goes to survey the southwest side of the room. On the window, wind-whipped rain sheets against the glass. Then, like a ghost manifesting out of nowhere, the running lights of a boat appear on the bay water, bobbing and closing in. Oh, be careful, Lewis. The lighthouse beacon shines on the waters, also on the inland trees bending under the gale. Now it is raining sideways. Suddenly out of the window, Lauren sees the cottage lights go dark. She looks down the staircase, then out the window again. In the yard, the blurry shape of a pickup stops in the driveway and an indistinct figure gets out. No, no! In the darkened base room, Lauren races down the staircase and grabs the door to whip it open, but it won't move. She twists the knob, wrestles with it, but the doorknob moves freely. She rushes to the window that's painted over and rubs a small spot trying to desperately see outside. She can make out that the cottage lights are still out, but a flashlight beam is moving inside the kitchen window. Carlos, Rudy! She looks to the staircase, then back to the window that she then begins to pound on frantically. Carlos! In the dark, Lauren finds a metal closet, rummages through it, and finds a shovel. The staircase is her only hope, and she runs up it. In the beacon room, smoke fills the space as a fire blazes at the electrical panel. She searches for and finds an extinguisher on the wall and uses it to put out the blaze. 
Feeling for the handrail, she makes her way down the staircase. The beacon light is out. Making her way to the base room window, Lauren sees the flashlight beam is moving through the cottage upstairs. She uses the shovel to break the window, only to discover it's too small to get through, and Lauren cuts her palm in the process. She attacks the door with the shovel. After a moment of hacking, it's open enough for her to squeeze through. Outside the lighthouse, in the sheeting rain, she sees the elm tree that stood nearby, bent, lodged against the door. She runs to the cottage and slips in through the back. Lauren pauses in the dark kitchen, groping for the emergency flashlight from the wall port near the door. She moves aside Rudy's jacket to find the electrical panel. She opens it, shines the light on the old fuses, sees one tripped and snaps it back. Light floods the little kitchen. She looks warily around, then to her left palm. Her hand is sliced along the lifeline, but not deeply. She winds a dish towel around it, sniffs the air, and frowns. Carlos. Lauren enters the sitting room. Rudy is sleeping on the sofa, Carlos in a chair. She glances up the stairs, checks Rudy and Carlos's pulses, and then bolts up the staircase. Lauren cautiously walks down the second floor hallway. She sees drying footprints of a man's boots on the wooden floorboards. She searches the bathroom, Carlos's room, and her room. She finds no one. Returning to the sitting room, she quickly goes to Carlos. Carlos! She shakes him, frowns, and sniffs. Carlos, w wake up! Dr. Sheldon! S sign it in, dear. Carlos, wake up. Are you okay? Uh, what is that? She looks to Rudy, who snorts and snores. <sighs> the back door swings open and Lauren spins to face the kitchen. Hello? Lauren? Carlos? Rudy? Maruso, drenched with rain and holding soggy takeout dinner bags, appears in the kitchen doorway. Oh, it's you. God, you're soaked. The Jeep's fuel line is cut. What's happened here? The light isn't... What happened to your hand? What's going on, Lauren? A tree fell against the lighthouse door and, and it trapped me, but them, I think they're drugged and it smells sweet. I'll check upstairs. Stay. I already did. No one. Maruso checks Rudy and Carlos's pulse. I, I think they're okay. Let's sit down a minute. In the kitchen... Lauren and Maruso sit at the pine table as he threads a needle with dental floss. You sure you don't want to go to a clinic for this? We're supposed to keep this hushed. I see Rudy's got the very basics. Floss? Strong, flexible, and waterproof. My bet is someone used a chloroform pod. It's fading quick. At least everything is still here. I saw that tree against the lighthouse door when I came in. It didn't fall by itself. I'd say something ran into it. With the skill of a man who's done it before, he stitches her cut palm with the needle and floss. It wasn't a big tree, but it would have damaged a car. Yeah, but a pickup could get away with less damage, and it couldn't naturally lodge against the door that well. It isn't heavy enough. It was wedged there. Captain? We're in here. She stands up. Maruso pulls her back down. Sit tight, doctor. 
Lauren goes into the sitting room. How are you feeling, Carlos? Here, drink this. I'll be right back. Uh, Captain, what time is it? The clocks are off a few minutes. Where are you going, Lewis? Maruso enters the kitchen and takes a fire extinguisher from the cupboard. To the lighthouse. Storm's dying away, but it's still a nasty night without the light on. It might catch fire again. I'll just look at the circuitry. He heads out the back door as Lauren turns back to the sitting room. The storm's ravage leaves bent trees and loose shingles. Lauren straightens the cottage's welcome mat with her injured hand now carefully wrapped. A pickup with Miles at the wheel drives up, stops, and he gets out. He walks over to meet Lauren near the porch. Hey, I just stopped by to tell you Lucy's dynamiting Smith's Cove day after tomorrow at five. Hasn't that been done already? Yeah, a couple times. It never plugged the flood tunnel before. I don't see why it would now, but you can't tell Lucy that or anything else. I suppose you're used to it all. Ugh, I'm sick of it. Then why do you stay? Let Saul dig it out himself. He's had you trapped here for how long? 20 years? I can leave. I'm not trapped. Sorry to hear about your accident. You had a fire? Yeah, kind of. Lewis said it was probably just old wiring. Well, I'm glad it wasn't too serious. Me too. Miles looks like he wants to say more, but he doesn't. With his head hanging down, he heads back to the pickup. All right, well, I'll see you later, Lauren. Miles gets in the pickup, waves to her, and she waves back as he leaves. Later, over in the lighthouse, Maruso kneels at the beacon circuitry board, inspecting singed wires. Lauren kneels beside him, cleaning a loose wire with wire strippers. Electrical blueprints are spread out on the floor beside them. They've been grouchy all morning. Some chloroform hangover. Carlos mentioned I should just go back. Well, maybe you should. Yeah, but you said there was no evidence of arson, and it was probably just old wiring. Trapping you in a burning room puts a new edge on this whole thing. Don't ignore the danger and say it wasn't Saul. You know it was. She hands him some more wire. He uses it to patch a section that's burnt, then tapes them together. I think it'll hold for a while. Miles' pickup has a fresh bend in its rear bumper. A pipe bumper. I saw it when he came up to the Jeep. I think Saul pulled that stunt last night, not Miles. He probably knew his old man was up to something, but I don't think he knows everything. He's a slow pot to simmer. She watches him work, thinking hard about the implication of real trouble that Maruso has just made. It's evening now. At the Clemens operation, workmen leave borehole 12B as Miles gets out of his truck and walks up to the office trailer. Inside the office, Saul sits leaning over a map on his desk. Two engineers look on. Miles bursts into the room, mad. Six meters, give or take. All right, that's it. We'll cover the rest tomorrow. The engineers can sense something's wrong by the angry look on Miles' face, and they quickly wrap things up and exit. He stands across from Saul's desk. Did you set that fire, Pop? Of course not. Come on, you did. You know I didn't. I watched, locked her in the tower when she came out. Nothing more to her, Miles. 
You know I wouldn't torch that girl. Miles turns away, conflict evident on his face. Saul leans back and considers Miles. Is that what she put in your head? That your old man did it? She didn't mention you. Maruso told her it was old wiring. Then that's what it was. On Miles' face, we see his loyalties are in trouble. Across the island, it's 5 p.m. in the little cottage kitchen. Lauren is going through paperwork at the table with Carlos. Rudy is dealing himself a game of solitaire. I can't give specifics, Matt, but this new evidence shows what I know is true. Rudy moves to lower the volume of a radio perched on the kitchen windowsill. That could be a lot of things. What could he have possibly gotten from us? Everything we had was locked in the secretary and it's still there. If he went through our personal things, then he knows our real names. If so, we're frauds. Nothing more. No maps, charts. Every kid on the lighthouse tour has a map, Carlos. It was some dot-to-dot -dot contest in the newspaper comics. Where are we now, Lauren? According to Brielle's estate, he was acquitted after a trial for treason. Shamed, he took a ship and disappeared in June of 1780, and that's it. The Naval Registry recants that. According to their records. 1776 on the shore of Oak Island. The drunken Lady Grey's crew begin to awake and stagger back aboard ship. The Lady Grey had a 120-man crew when she left in September of 1776. Also aboard was Jonathan Stewart, formerly of the Royal British Engineers. In Stewart's quarters, he's sleeping in his berth, still fully clothed, with his boots on and a stained shirt. On the ship's main deck, Brielle, cleaned up but weary, stands at the ship rail with his hands behind his back, watching in disdain as the Gray's crew clumsily climb the ladder to ship topside. Ensign Williams also looks on. Brielle was to drop 90 laborers off at Port Shannon, Virginia, steward included, and on a payroll of 2.2 million pounds. It was old money, silver coins, and old copper farthings. Then that's what we need to see and verify from the British Royal Revenue Library. Yeah, but there's no record of the Lady Grey reaching Port Shannon. At a British merchant seaport in the winter of 1777, the Lady Grey slowly drifts to the docks, careworn and under torn sails with a bony, disease-ravaged 18 of the Grey's crew. Brielle leans heavily at a mast post, dull eyes searching the docks. She turned up in a British port in December 1777 with a crew of 18 plus Brielle, suffering from numerous disorders. As the Lady Grey pulls port side of a dock, the British dockmaster warily watches Brielle and the crew as ropes are tossed to them so they can tie up the ship. Brielle nods to the dockmaster. That's when the dockmaster stiffly summons the four British officers waiting at the town side of the dock. Most died of their illnesses. Brielle was tried and convicted of treason and sentenced to hang in 1780, but escaped and was never taken into custody again. my soul 
Trouble is a stone that I can't let go Life is a flower, you know Have you seen what a rock will do to a rose? When the night stretch out like a long black snake You wrap around your mind, ain't no escape Then luck and love run like vines Cover my dreams when I close my eyes The devil cries and pines for heaven Where's the moles always missing? But it's too late, can't make no deals Oh Lord, I know how the devil feels Every game, right, wrong, love and hate. I send my peace and I send my prayers. Found the garden closed for the bears. The devil cries and pines for heaven. Wells and walls, all he's missing. But it's too late, can't make no deals. The devil cries and pines for heaven Wails and moans, all is missing But it's too late There's two sides to every game, right and wrong, love and hate. I said my peace and I said my prayers, and the garden closed for repair. We'll return to the pod play, Last Flag on Oak Island, in 60 seconds. We now return to the pod play entitled, Last Flag on Oak Island. The clock strikes 5.30 p.m. Lauren and Carlos are still hovering over the papers scattered on the table. Rudy is lost in another round of solitaire. That'll be year bright. Quite the noise. Everything around here is noise. It's early the next morning, the 30th. Riel and Williams go to Stewart's cabin. We flash back. On the Lady Grey, the captain's cabin is lit with a single candle, but the air is full of electricity as Briel and Ensign Williams stand over the open Royal British chest, which is now empty. They load it with thick metal chain until three quarters full. Then they add loose silver and copper coins on top of the chain in the chest. Brielle states Stuart has made a mess of himself not being a drinking man. 
Brielle and Williams return to his quarters, where they fill the large chest with chain topped by loose halfpenny farthings and what he calls enough old shillings to appear appropriate. There's a knock on the cabin door. Brielle opens it to find Stuart in clean clothes but disheveled and wobbly, leaning on a walking stick. Brielle waves an arm for him to enter. Stuart steps in, unsteady, but he livens a bit when he sees the chest of coins. He pokes the walking stick into the chest, wiggles it, then retracts the stick. Stuart arrives, not quite sober, but has wits enough to stick a cane into the chest to test for a false bottom. Satisfied, the chest is locked. Brielle closes the chest lid and locks the chains and padlocks around it. Brielle looks to Ensign Williams and nods. With that, Ensign Williams exits the room. Before long, they are all at the money pit site. Brielle, Stuart, Ensign Williams, and four of the Grey's crew lower the chained Royal British chest by ship's tackle from an oak tree down into the pit depths to the 130-foot deep wooden platform. In the pit depths, Stuart descends by rope and detaches the rope from the chest before he is lifted out of the pit. At the surface, Brielle directs the hungover crewman to pour buckets of cement into the pit. The chest is placed in the pit and cement poured on top. They let this sit until the evening, during which the crew has free access to the ship's liquor. Brielle and Stewart put a metal plate on top of the set cement and construct a wooden platform at the 100-foot mark. This is where the flood tunnel enters the shaft. By dusk, the pit is filled with dirt to the 100-foot depth. Brielle looks at Stewart, now a little more sober, carrying the inscribed 90-foot stone. Stuart carefully ties the stone onto a rope and lowers it by hand to the wooden platform in the pit. At the pit bottom platform, Brielle watches the stone lowered, then positions it on the platform, stands, and looks warily to the shaft walls. Stuart has left two feet of earth undisturbed at the wall of the pit where the tunnels meet. If activated, the force of the seawater will push through the remaining wall into the pit. Brielle remarks that he is in the belly of the earth. Brielle motions to the top and a wooden seat lowers by rope to take him out. Another 10 feet of dirt is filled. This is the coated part, Lauren. Copy it down exactly. 40 feet below, 2 million pounds are buried. Carlos reads, Stewart included the inscription on his useless map, lest we forget the water trap. The floodgate was located 40 feet below the surface in the second air shaft, 150 feet north of the pit. It was to be dug 40 feet down and activated 10 feet above the tunnel. Lucy has had an exclusive lease on that whole flood tunnel parcel for years. If it comes to that, we'll see if we can find a way to work with her. Good luck. Well, there's some treasure in the pit at least. If he put roughly two million in the first two chests, he would have had about 200,000 pounds left for the largest chest. Lucy will have to be satisfied. She's not gonna like those chains. Around six in the evening at the flood tunnel, the ground from Smith's Cove to the Yearbright operation is blown up between Midpoint and the beach. 
Lucy, head engineer, and four workmen assess their success through the mud. A backhoe, crane, and bulldozer stand by. However, back at the cottage, Lauren is watching the beacon go through its nightly warm-up. Along the wall, she sees Rudy's bronze dustpan awards, photos from the lighthouse's early days, and framed articles. She is admiring the beautiful scene of the bay outside the window when she hears footsteps on the staircase. Miles appears, holding up a hand. Now, before you tell me to bug off, just let me say a few words. Miles, please. I apologize for what I said at Rudy's last week and for all the accusations about you and your old man in the pit. Honest, I'm just here to say sorry. Okay, great, forget it. And I apologize for my old man coming over. He had no right to threaten you or to act that way. Thanks. Lewis will be here soon, Miles. Thanks for coming by to uh, settle things. Um, I can stay till this thing comes on, you know, in case of another fire. It's fine. No need. Well, just in case. She said she can handle it, Miles. Maruso appears at the staircase, walks to Lauren, and kisses her soundly. You're late. Miles, don't you have a hole to dig? Miles glances at Lauren, then exits down the staircase. Well, that was rude. It wasn't that bad of a kiss. Oh, Miles. So is putting a golf ball in my boat's fuel tank. I'd been here sooner, but the dang thing stalled all the way. Guess that would have put a damper on Miles' little ambush. The beacon illuminates them as they head for the stairs. Outside, another storm is whipping up. The wind is fierce and the rain is coming down in sheets. When the morning sun rises, it shows borehole 12B is puddled with water. The pump pond is overflowing and there is scaffolding loose. Most of the equipment is strewn all around. Lucy Yearbright is heard on the radio saying, I believe he could be right on that part. Saul Clemens has been wrong about a lot of things the last few years, but he's probably right on that. We had over 1,000 liters of water coming into that pit every minute, Matt. That's a lot of pressure, enough to push a sizable mass some distance, especially when you consider the length of time the Smith's Cove has been active. He's right. Any treasure buried in the pit has migrated south, but not as far as he's saying. Any bulk would move 10 to 15 meters, not the hundreds he's been claiming. Good question, Matt, but I don't know what he's got on his mind these days. If he's got a map, he's got a map. Rudy and Carlos are eating a warm breakfast at the table. Lauren enters, looks back to the sitting room, then glances at the radio. The causeway servicing Oak Island is privately owned. Boat owners are asked to avoid the area until cleanup is finished. That's why Lewis is on the sofa? Yep. Told him not to try going back. No drilling, no pumps? Maruso appears in the kitchen doorway, looking groggy. Not yet. Saul has to react to Lucy in the storm now. And Lucy probably has to pump out whatever new work she's done. Rudy changes the radio station. Only as legitimate as its sources, and that's what this map is. I'll not go into it on air, but some unscrupulous people will go to any length to make a dollar. Naturally, I've stopped payment on that transaction. Can't save face on stolen goods, Saul. 
Rudy switches the radio back to the previous station and lowers the volume. Rudy has a theory about Saul's evidence. I got a map missing. What map? The sketch of proposed lighthouse sites. That's what Saul Clements got his hands on. If that's it, we're lucky. Well, they're at it again. Lucy Yearbright and the head engineer stand at borehole 11D as a drilling rig brings up a core sample. She cranks out the bit and carries it to a work table, cracks it open, and inspects it. The head engineer looks on. That was Lucy's drill. Core sampling, probably. Rudy closes the window and sits at the table to deal up another game of solitaire. Well, they're going through it, or at least taking a sample. How long will it take? If it's only a sample, a couple hours. If they're going through it, a day, or until they break enough bits to decide it's a boulder and better to go around. Too long. Do you want to wait until this evening? It might be quieter then. He shakes his head no. I don't think you want to either. He turns the journal for her to see a coded part on the page. Using the previous code in IBM rendering, this translate is Northwest Cove, Port Gloucester, Mecklenburg. Little sister in the Atlantic, Jasper water and earth, a cubit dry port and two rods. That's it? That's all? Those are the directions? Carlos nods yes. It's nightfall now, and Lucy leans over her desk at the Yearbright office. She's dirty and weary, but hopeful, hard hat still on. Two small mounds of clay and silt are on the table. They are part of the core sample taken earlier. She divides the first mound with a ruler, sees a dull gray vein, then a trace of copper. The office door opens and Lucy looks up as Paul Robbins a noted geologist steps in. You got the lab results, Paul? He grins and holds a rolled up piece of paper. 22%. Lucy smiles, then drops back heavily in her chair and laughs. <laughs> the next morning, the sun rises on the Clemens operation. Two workmen are looking at the drill and water pumps at borehole 12B. They've shut off. One workman shines his flashlight into the hole and sees that the water is at the 40-foot level. In his office, Saul sits at his desk smoking a cigar when the two crewmen rush in. None of the pumps are running. We got water up to... I know. Let him go. The cottage is humming too. Carlos and Lauren are already hard at it working on notes and ideas. Rudy enters the kitchen and opens the back door to see Maruso. No need to knock, Captain. Maruso enters and lays the Bay Coast Star newspaper on the table. The headline reads in bold letters, Oak Island Treasure Found. They can't believe their eyes. Sit down, Captain. As Maruso grabs a chair beside the pine table, Carlos and Lauren pull the newspaper closer to get a better look. Rudy serves coffee all around and sits down himself. Found? Lucy isn't wasting time. She can't afford to. Saul stopped manning his pumps on the Yearbright side, letting water drain into her site. 
We're talking about a flood tunnel drain, mind you. The first two core samples were taken from below bedrock, Lucy says. Reports conclude the iron filings are a low-carbon material, extensively corroded with a definite saline factor, drawn between the years 1500 and 1800 by cold workings. Yeah, but she doesn't say from what depth. That would make working too difficult, considering how close she must be to the Clemens. Let's see. Here, Bright reports trying to obtain more samples from a deeper level, but the hole refilled with loose metal as soon as the bit was brought up. Metal in loose pieces. The timing couldn't be better. The depository is somewhere on the Jodry shoreline. If the treasure has been located in the money pit, we'll have a better chance at getting the lease and rights we require elsewhere. You know where it is? Last night, we found a second coated section. He never gives any precise directions. What we've come up with is a cave at least partially submerged in Jodry's Cove. There's no caves above the waterline along Jodry's shore. We were thinking about the difference in elevation since 1777. Well, it won't take long to find out. At Jodry's Cove the next day, a hidden Miles is using a pair of binoculars to get a better look at the second wind anchored in the cove. He watches Maruso and Lauren go over the boat side with snorkels. They swim the edge underwater, searching, finding nothing. They move down the grassy shoreline. As Lauren hovers just at snorkel level, Maruso pushes back the bank's long grass, exposing a submerged cave. He goes in with a flashlight, comes out, shakes his head no. They move on. I have been searching for so long now. Searching till I'm done. All I'm finding is that answers aren't just laying on the ground in the sun. the stones that I've been turning haven't turned up anything I need so I try a new direction ask another question and pray for a silence I can see oh but tell Let me look again 
tomorrow What if all that waits for me is peace Oh, peace Oh, but tell me what I'd do If I wasn't on this road If I wasn't working through This fire in my soul There's no mystery Near sunset, Lucy Yearbright oversees the construction of tall, portable floodlights. At Borehole 11D, a bulldozer and excavator work the area in an angled slope. The stars begin to fill a black sky, and at the lamp-lit cottage, Carlos sits at the table with the notes and journal. Lauren and Maruso enter from the back door, both tired. Nothing yet. Lauren sits down strips off the bandage around her hand and flexes her fingers. Nope. We've covered half of the shoreline. Just a few shallow caves. Maruso looks at Lauren's palm. I'll pick you up at seven tomorrow. See you then. Maruso waves a little goodbye and heads out the back door. Hungry? Ugh, I'm too tired and sore to eat. Lucy plans to work around the clock. Timing is crucial on this. We have to get the rights on the Jodry Cove lot after the cash is brought up. But before it's opened, Rudy's right. Those chains Brielle buried will create a lot of suspicion. Focus will be on the rest of the island, no matter how obscure the lot. Eh, yeah, but the chains won't necessarily mean there's more treasure elsewhere. True. I've contacted the Historical Society. They have contingencies in working with us. It's dark at the Clemens office in more ways than one. Saul, bleary with drinking, studies a newspaper article in the low lamplight. He drags out a map of Lot 18 and pushes aside Rudy's lighthouse route map. A stack of unpaid bills is nearby. Frustrated, he sweeps the bills and route map into the wastebasket. He focuses on the newspaper article and grows angry. Dang her. Around noon the next day, at Jodry's Cove, Lauren and Maruso are swimming along, exploring the half-submerged shoreline. The second wind is anchored in the cove. Lauren and Maruso stop at one grassy spot of shore and inspect. He ducks underwater. A moment, he surfaces. This one's deeper. Take a breath and we'll go in. Not too far. Lauren removes her snorkel, inhales deeply. They submerge together. Inside the cave, it's dark. Maruso and Lauren surface and begin to shine their flashlights on the brown and tan walls. The ceiling appears to be only three feet off the water. 
The opening is covered by a veil of moss. The rock ceiling breaks the surface inside the air-trapped cavern. Their flashlight beams rest on the wall in a six-foot-wide sand bank with a deep hole tunneled inland. Ugh, not much fresh air. The entrance allows some exchange of air at low tide. They swim, then walk up to the sandy bank, beams spotting the walls. Her light circles, then rests on an outdated, rusted, short-handled spade and pickaxe. Someone's been here before. She shines her light on the tools, then to the tunnel hole in the wall. He shines his light there as well. Stay here. He moves to the hole, shines his light in. She follows. Their lights show a hollow six feet deep, then a collapse of dirt. He shines his on the hollow walls and a series of pick marks. Pick marks, this has to be it. Should we take anything back? No, Carlos will want everything photographed first. All right, I'll get the equipment. Maruso re-enters the water and submerges. Lauren shines her light on the bank where high tides have left slimy foliage and small seashells. Then she sees washed over prints in the sand. She kneels beside them, studying, looks to the sharper prints of their water shoes, then shines her beam to the hollow floor. There are low-heeled boot prints pressed in the clay tunnel pathway. Moments later, Lauren kneels on the bank, staring at the tools, boot prints, and ground as Maruso emerges oh, from the water with a crazy. waterproof bag and meets her. She shines her light into the hollow, then to the boot prints. He nods, yes. Dang, you think? Really? I mean, it has to be. Miles, we've from got the to bag, close off. she takes a Polaroid camera. She takes photos of the tools, hollow, boot prints, then the jasper-colored walls and watery entrance. She watches the Polaroids develop and leans against the wall. Ugh, someone never came back out. Buried alive. He looks at the hollow ceiling as she studies the Polaroids. What's this? She kneels at the hollow, careful not to disturb the prints, and rubs her fingers over the clay floor inside. Embedded is a small, round shape. She digs it up. A coin? No, no, a button? He studies the button as she carefully rubs the dirt off of it. It's brass, old, 1770s, with an indistinct relief. Looks like brass. We'll take it for Dr. Sheldon. Matt Smith, a 30-year-old newspaper reporter, stands at the Yearbright operation interviewing Lucy. Tarps block the borehole from the camera view. We're contending with the waters from the South Shore flood tunnel now, but our pumps can handle it. I'd like to say it's a chest, but after all this time and hits and misses, I doubt the darn thing's in one piece. Interesting, what's your plan now? Dr. Sheldon's watch reads 7 p.m. as Lauren and Maruso enter from the back door. Dr. Sheldon, Rudy. The drills have stopped. She's got it. Lucy brought it up. Lauren turns on the radio. 
We plan to bring it up tomorrow, Matt. She lowers the volume. Dr. Sheldon said we had to get the permit approved after Lucy brought anything up, but before it was opened. This is about as close as we can get. The phone rings, and she moves to answer it. Hello? Yes, Dr. Sheldon, we, uh... Lewis, do you have a change of clothes on the second wind? At 7.30 p.m., Miles peers into the Clemens borehole, wearing a headset and hard hat. A winch rope hangs down into the hole. Two long pump hoses hang over the side. Four workmen look on as the winch rope twists. The pumps begin shaking dangerously. Oh my God, he's crazy. Do your job and shut up. Miles looks down into the darkness. All right, Pop, come on up. Pop, we've got to shut down. The pumps are knocking. Miles, we've got to close off. We can't lock them down. The water level's too high. Come on up, Pop. Come on up. Miles strips off his headset, tosses it to the workman, grabs a cable harness, straps it on, and snaps it to the winch cable. Lower me down. This has been the Podplay Last Flag on Oak Island, adapted from the screenplay written by J.R. Jordan Baines. If you've enjoyed the new and original music you've heard in this Podplay, you can stream or download these songs anywhere, anytime from wherever you get your music, or simply visit podplays.com for the songs, more Podplays containing more original music and entertaining bonus content. Search for the free Podplays app in the App Store now. Hey, I just wanted to take a quick second and tell you that if you want to be a fly on the wall in conversations you probably wouldn't be able to listen to otherwise, you really need to subscribe to the Marty Ray Project chats podcast marty ray and chris wallen chat with some of the most interesting people in entertainment from burt kreischer and vanilla to phase on love ddp dina carter herb dean they chat with some really interesting people this show is like potato chips i guarantee you can't just listen to one subscribe download rate and review the marty ray project chats wherever podcasts are heard great stories epic songs Pod plays. If you enjoy the new and original music you discover in Podplays, be sure to stream or download these songs anywhere you currently get your music. Simply search the artist name Podplays, and please remember to like, follow, and share with all your friends.